You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2, that's the passage we're going to be in this morning, Philippians chapter 2. And as you're thinking about our passage, in particular verses 5 through 11, um, as you think about, about that passage in this particular text that we have this morning, if you think about the entire Bible as a, as a range of mountains, this passage would be one of its highest peaks. It's that, it's that pristine and beautiful of a passage. In a lot of ways, these seven or eight verses, they're, they're like the Bible in miniature. And in a sense, they, they take the, the whole story of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and condense it down into to seven verses. This is what's happening in this text. They, they take us, this particular text takes us all the way into eternity past. Like before there was even such a thing as time, that this universe, before all of that, it takes us all the way back there. Then it fast forwards to the, to, the, to the biggest, most important event in human history as Jesus comes and lives among us. He, he straps on human flesh and he dies in our place. He's risen from the dead on the third day. And then it takes us all the way into eternity, into the future. It opens up what will be and shows us the picture of what will be. It gives us a glimpse of that. This is how beautiful these, these seven verses are. You know, it's funny, when I think of preaching, there, there are certain moments, like when we uh, start working through the book of Philippians, there's moments that I look out into the book of Philippians and I'm like, I can't wait for us to get there. And this has been one of those texts. It's like, I can't wait for us to get to, to chapter two, verses five through 11. I can't wait. But that's like three or four months ago when I'm thinking that. And now I'm here and I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you preach this and do this justice? Like, like how, do you, how do you give this text in such a way where it, it shows the beauty and the wonder of what's, of what's in it? In a lot of ways, when I come to passages like this, I feel almost like the Lord is saying um, something similar to us as we read it this morning and think about it, that he would be saying to, to maybe a Moses uh, back in the story of Exodus in the burning bush where he says, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. And that's our text this morning. So with fear and trembling, let me read it for you one more time, starting in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. There's your key word. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So think context when you, when you think this passage. Uh, th- this is not just a disconnected passage out of nowhere written in a vacuum. It's inside of the letter that Paul wrote to the, to the church in Philippi. And, uh, you know, when you think about the church in Philippi, it started back in Acts 16. Paul planted the church. 
and uh, God just did some miraculous things to enable the planting of this particular church. Paul's in Philippi. He goes outside of the city down to the riverbank. There he runs into some ladies having a Bible study that don't know Jesus and they meet Jesus and Lydia was rescued by Jesus. And then he's walking in the middle of the town, uproar happens and this slave girl, um, is saved. And, and then he's thrown in jail and in jail, the policeman, the jailer, he and his family meet Jesus and get saved. And this is how the church started there. But not only did, did it start with miraculous work, it continued with the miraculous work of Jesus. Um, Jesus was sustaining this church and growing this church and doing wonderful things in this church. Of all the New Testament churches, the church in Philippi was most likely the most mature and sort of grown up church we have in the New Testament. It was that church. Jesus was continuing to do this beautiful work in this particular church family. And now when the book of, or when the letter of Philippians is written, it's 10 years later. So the church was planted 10 years ago and it's 10 years later. And Paul is writing back to the church to both encourage them and to correct them. He wants them to know, he just pours out his pastoral heart of affection for them, but he also has things he wants to correct in them. And one of the primary issues of correction that this church needs is around the issue of unity or the lack thereof. So, so think again, this church has been planted 10 years ago. They're 10 years old. And you know what's happened over 10 years in the life of this church? The romanticism of a church starting has turned into real life. That's what's happened. It's not quite as much fun as it used to be. Well, it wasn't quite the same as it used to be. Uh, remaining sin has broken in and started to break relationships. Like after 10 years, you're just not impressed with people anymore, you know? You, you just get to know people well enough that they don't impress you. You, you get to know that the dark side to their souls, that, that, that remaining sin that's still in them and that remaining sin in them and in you has collided a few times over 10 years. All of those sort of things are happening now. People have sinned and been sinned against. The disappointments over 10 years with just people. Aren't, dis aren't people just disappointing so often? Aren't you disappointing? Just when you think about yourself so often, right? Th those disappointments have begun to mount in the church. And, and isn't it a great thing that that just happens in churches like 2,000 years ago? We don't have to worry about those things anymore, right? Or, or not, right? Th that lack of unity is in every church over time. That those sort of remaining sin causing those problems is in every church over time. And in Philippians chapter two, verses one through four, Paul, in, in the clearest language in the book of Philippians, tells them, this is what's needed if you're going to have unity, if you're gonna be of one mind, if you're actually gonna to be together and producing fruit as a church, that this is what's needed for unity. This is what's needed in your church if you're going to survive and even thrive in the midst of relational conflict. Here's the thing that's needed, humble servanthood. Humility, that's what's needed. For you, for you to, to, to pick up the towel and take the form of a servant, that's what's needed. Humble servanthood. That is a church's only chance. It's for the people of that church to, to embrace humility, to embrace servanthood, to, to see other people like that. You see this in verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's the opposite of humble servanthood. And this is the problem. This is why they don't have unity. It's because everybody is thinking in terms of what's in it for me. Everybody needs to get around me and support me and lift me up so that I can go reach my ambitions in life. He's saying this is the problem. It's, it's selfish ambition and, and vain conceit. But in humility, there's our key word again, in humility, 
count others as more significant than yourselves. It's not that you're not significant, you're significant. You're made in the image of God. You're son and daughter of God. But he's saying, but look at other people as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look, look not only to his own interest, yes, look, look to your own interest, but not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's servanthood, humble servanthood. The, the only way toward unity is through the valley of humility. Humble servanthood is the only way to get there. And by the way, two weeks ago, Jimmy did a wonderful job. If you're here two weeks ago, preaching through uh, chapter two, verses one through four, just did an outstanding job. And I just wanted to affirm him and say thanks to him for doing that. He just served us so well that morning. Now, this text is the next one. So that's one through four, then you get to verse five. Now I want you to imagine, just so you can, so you can put verses five through 11 in context, I want you to imagine this moment happening. Paul wrote this letter and it was to be read aloud to the whole church in Philippi. So imagine the pastor on that Sunday morning getting up and saying to the church, you're not gonna believe it, we have a letter from Paul today. And he breaks open the letter and he starts reading verses one through four. He starts telling them, this is your way through conflict. This is the way toward unity, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. They just read all of that. And then someone stands up and they're like, but, but hold on, what does that mean? I mean, I, I hear Paul saying, yes, go, go after humble servanthood. I hear him say, look, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I hear him saying these things, but well, I need something down on the ground. Like get that out of the air and give me an illustration of that. I need an example of what that might look like in real life. Welcome to the purpose of verses five through 11. Five through 11 is intended by Paul to answer that person's question of where's the example? What does it actually look like to walk in humble servanthood of other people? What, what does it look like, not only to look after your own interests, but also to the interests of others? What does that look like? Verses five through 11 answer the question. They give the example. And if there's one point, maybe if you could just put it in one phrase, what Paul is getting at in five through 11, here's, here's his point. Jesus's path, his path is our pattern. His path is our pattern. The path of Jesus, humble servanthood, is to be the pattern for every follower of Jesus. His path, humble servanthood, is our pattern. It's the way that our lives should be formed and it's, it's the way our lives should, should look. When you think about five through 11, this precious passage that we're dealing with this morning, I think it's good to think of it in two ways. It has two functions. Function number one is it functions like a window. So, so it's a window that you can see through all the way to the person of Jesus. And listen, there's nothing more important for us to see than the humble servanthood of Jesus on our behalf. His humble servanthood is the reason that we can be rescued by God, right? That there's nothing more important for us to peer into than the person and work of Jesus. And I don't think there's any seven verse summary in the New Testament that, 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 more clearly articulates this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus has done than this passage. And so it's a window for us to be able to peer through and see Jesus. And the reason, the, the reason that's so important is because that's how we change. We change by seeing Jesus. You don't change by self-will. The only way we change is through worship. 
It's not self-will, it's through worship. It's through seeing the person of Jesus in our hearts being stunned by him, awed by him, overwhelmed by him. That is the moment when human beings actually change in the profound sort of foundational way. It's not through self-will, it's through worship. And the only way we worship Jesus is by looking at Jesus, by staring at him so our hearts can be stunned by him. So it's a window. And I just wanna invite you this morning to use this passage that way as a window to see our Savior's work on our behalf. So, so it functions like a window, but not only like a window, it also functions like a mirror. It functions like a mirror for us to hold up in front of our lives and to ask ourselves the question, has the path of our crucified and risen King become our pattern? Has the path of our crucified and risen King, is, is, is that path visible in our life? Can we see his path inside of our life? Can we see it operating at work in us? Verses five through 11 aren't just lofty theology to be admired from a distance. That's not the purpose of five through 11. They're meant to be a picture of humble servanthood that should be visible in your life and in my life and in our church's life. That's the purpose. Not just to give us some lofty ideals of this is who Jesus is and what he's done, but to give us a picture to aspire to, to ask Jesus to make us into. His path is our pattern. So this passage comes in two, two parts, two parts. Here's part one, the humility of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus. What you find in these verses is, is I mean, when I read them, there, there's a part of me that just can't believe it. I just, I can't believe that this happened. It, it's just that, it's that mind boggling, that mind blowing. What, what you're about to see is, is the willing humiliation of God himself. That, that God would willingly be humiliated for your rescue and your benefit and your need and your interest. You're about to watch a person raise his hand and to say, yeah, on their behalf, I'll be ruined. For, for their rescue, I'll be ruined. That's what we're seeing in this text. The humiliation of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. You see it in, starts in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves. There's the command of the passage. Like it's, it, it should not just be lofty ideals to be admired from a distance, right? It's actually be pursued. It's, our life is actually look like this. That this picture that we're gonna see, we're to be conformed into this picture, looking more like this picture. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, you might circle that word form, it's a big word, the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. The, the humility of Jesus takes three steps down in this passage, three steps. Here's step one, his humble renunciation. His humble renunciation. Though he was in the form of God, that word form is is telling us something, it's, 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 it's shining a light on and talking about the, the triune God. So think about who God is in the scriptures. God, God is triune. It's one God that we're presented with in the scriptures, but that God is made up of three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each of those persons are fully God. Now that'll make your head hurt, huh? It's like, good luck comprehending all that. There's just mystery in the triune God. One God, three distinct persons, each fully God. Now, verse six, 
happens to be one of the clearest places in the New Testament to see the, the godness of Jesus. The like Jesus is God. He, he is God. So look at that word form. He was in the form of God. That word form, it, it's, it's difficult to bring over into English. It, and the word form is probably not the best word in English because the word form for us typically alludes to the, like the, the external appearances of something. But there was a Greek word that implied that the external appearance is the same. But there's also a Greek word that's used in this text called morphe, which deals not with the external sort of conformity or appearances, but the internal essence of a person. The, the word morphe that's used here for form in the Greek, it's, it's used to talk about the substance of someone, like the essence of their nature. And in saying that he was in the form of God, it's not saying that just like, he kind of looked like God, he kind of lived, like, it's not saying that. It's saying down at the, the essence of who Jesus is, he, he's God, he's made of the same stuff as God. He's of the same nature as God, he, he is God. This is what it's saying, he's in the form of God, Jesus is God, but he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. I love how another translation says it. He did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He, he didn't consider his godness as something to be taken advantage of. So now just, just allow your mind to just soak in this and marinate in this for a moment. Jesus, God himself, here's what this passage is saying. Jesus is laying aside the rights and advantages of being God. All the privileges that, that come along with his godness he is, he is willingly renouncing those things. With an, with an open heart and open hands, he's saying, I surrender all the rights and privileges and advantages of my godness. I'm laying them down. I'm surrendering them. I'm setting them aside. I'm renouncing my rights. How un-American is that? He, he's just, he's laying aside all that he could rightfully claim in this moment. You know, in a lot of ways, at this moment in, in this passage, it, it opens up the heart of Jesus and just allows us to look all the way down into the heart of Jesus. And you know what we find deep down there in the heart of Jesus? We find a love that doesn't grasp for what's his, but willingly gives what's his. That's what you find all the way down there at the heart of Jesus. When you look all the way down to the bottom, it's a heart that's not always grasping and clutching and, and wanting to keep for himself, but a heart that's just open and willing to give everything that he is so that we could be served and benefited and rescued. He, he could have held tight to his rights, the, the benefits of being God, but he didn't. He, he renounced them. He, he opened up his hands and said, I'll give them if, if me giving them would help them. I, I'll willingly lay down my rights for them. The, just think about what it's saying about the very nature of God. This is why when you look down all the way in the heart, this is what you see in God. The very nature of God is not just, not just to enjoy his godness, but, but to give it for the benefit of others. That, that's what you find at the, deep down in the heart of God. His godness wasn't for him, but for them. And there's never been a greater act of generosity. There's never been a moment where somebody has given more than Jesus is giving up in this moment. There's never been a human being lay down more rights than Jesus is laying down in this moment. Jesus is living with this open-handedness, showing us what big-hearted, other-centered generosity looks like. He's showing us what it looks like to be a humble servant. 
I'll renounce my rights. I'll, re I'll let them go if that would lead to their rescue. My, my rights mean nothing to me if they could be rescued. This is what we see deep down in the heart of Jesus, a renunciation of rights. But that's not the only step of humiliation. That's the first one. But, it, but he takes another step down in humility. His humble incarnation. You see this in verse seven. His humble incarnation. He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Then verse seven. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Another translation says he, he made himself nothing. God who is everything willingly becomes nothing. When you think of a passage like 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was, in the, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, in his, by his poverty, might become rich. When we're, when we're thinking about what does it mean for God to go from ultimate wealth down into the depths of poverty? What, what does that mean? That this passage is showing us what it means. That, that he's emptied himself. And just feel the force of those words. Those are emphatic words. He emptied himself. He, I mean, he, he, he willingly took the step to make himself nothing. He says, he, to make himself a zero to just pour himself out. How did he do that? It goes on to tell us. Here's how he did it. By taking the form of a servant. God, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I said this yes, or last week, but J.R. Packer in his book, Knowing God, calls the incarnation the greatest mystery in the Bible. Like if you can actually get and believe the incarnation, you can get and, and believe the rest of the crazy stuff in the Bible. This is like the top end of the craziness in the Bible. It's right here that, that God would, would put on human flesh, the incarnation. And this is how God made himself nothing, by becoming human. Now let me just say a couple of things really clearly just to make sure that, that that there's no like room for confusion on this. Jesus was fully God. And without diminishing his godness, he also became fully man. So neither nature diminished the other. It wasn't he's half God and half man. No, he's fully God and fully man. Now I want you to ponder with me just some of what this means, being take, uh, taking up the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. I mean, the humility of God in that is... It, it, it's almost beyond comprehension that God would insert himself into a mother's womb. If you're God, would you do that? I'm just saying, I don't think I'd do that. I'd find a different way to come, right? He, he inserts himself into a, into a mother's womb. He, he's not born in the high castle, right? But in the lowliness of a stable. God experiences life as a newborn baby. I mean, God couldn't talk for like 18 months, just babble. It's the humility of God. This is the emptying of God. God experienced puberty, like his voice cracked. I said that last week. It's a, I can't believe God would, would, would come to earth like that. Experiencing puberty. God came and he lived not as a king, but as a commoner. You don't have to be a commoner for, for God to love you. But if you are, that's just fine with God. 
He knows what that's like. He didn't come as a king, but as a commoner. But he actually stooped down even below the level of a commoner. It says he became a slave. I mean, that's the literal translation of, of, of servant. He, he became a slave. This is how far the becoming nothing went. He, he didn't just lay down his rights, right? He, he became absolutely nothing. He laid down all of his rights, not just some of them, but all of his rights. And not just to become a slave of some, but to become a slave of all. This is the humility of God. Jesus living the well-being of heaven for the sin-scorched earth that you and I inhabit. And he doesn't just come and become a person here. He comes and he lowers himself below every other human being and becomes a slave here. C.S. Lewis describes this this way. The second person in God, God the Son, he became human. He was born into the world as an actual person, a real man of a particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many pounds. The eternal being who knows everything and created the universe became not only a man, but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside of a woman's body. Now listen to this last phrase. I think this will help us get the sense of God's humility here. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. I mean, what would it look like for you to condescend to the point of becoming a slug? That, that is the humility of God. This is, this, is the, this is the emptying of himself that God is enduring here. This is what it costs God to put on human flesh and to become a humble servant. Have you ever asked yourself the question, where would we be if Jesus hadn't prioritized humble servanthood? Where would, be, where would we be without the humility of God? Do you know the answer to that? We would be damned forever. That's where we'd be without the humility of God. And Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. Like th this mind that you see in Jesus, have this mind among your yourselves. Can, can I just ask you the question? With people around you right now, just in your relational life that you're living, if this is how far God is willing to go, this is how low he is willing to stoop, how low are you willing to go right now for people around you? Have this mind among yourselves. This is kind of the ironic thing about Jesus and then about us. Jesus was above everything, but nothing was too low for him. Isn't that amazing? That's the humility of God. He shouldn't have done any of it. It was, it was below him. Everything was below him. But, but he, he, he willingly put himself below it all. He was above everything, but nothing was too low for him. But on the contrary, the irony is nothing is too low for us but we feel like we should be above everything. We feel like every, nothing is too low for us, but we feel like everything is too low for us. That we should be up here looking down upon these people, right? Where Jesus became a servant of all, we have this deep churning desire in us to make everyone servants of us. This is, this is the human problem. 
This is what Paul's addressing in Philippians 2. This is what this whole passage is meant to illustrate. This is how low Jesus is willing to go. So come along with him. Take, take the journey with him. Who has God placed in your life right now that you just won't get low enough to serve him? You just won't stoop low enough to actually get to their interest and their needs. Maybe we could ask it this way. Think about the people around you. Like if, if we could just pull them and get a sense from them about you. If we were just to ask them, is this person, you know, do they cause you to be more aware of, of their demands? Or when you're around them, are you more aware of their humble servanthood? What would the people around you say? They're more aware of your demands or your humble servanthood? Your, your willingness to get low, to, to meet their needs, to, to get to their interest. But Jesus takes another step in humiliation. He doesn't stop just at the incarnation. He takes one more step, his humble crucifixion. Look at verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the central, most meaningful event in the history of the universe was God humbling himself. This moment was the most important moment in, in the universe, in, in, in all of history. And I want you to think about the sort of obedience that we're seeing here in Jesus. This is an all out total surrender sort of obedience. It's that hard obedience. It's that obedience even to the point of death. That's the obedience that we're seeing in Jesus. Jesus' humble obedience that rescues you and that rescues me absolutely ruined him. That, that's the sort of hard obedience that we're seeing here. It took him not to, the, not, not to that place in the high castle where all the privileges sort of abound, right? But it took him to the lowest place, down, down to the lowest place that you could go in first century world, all the way to the cross. Now, here's the problem in our 21st century world. We have lost the disgust of the cross. It's just not easy for us to see the cross in its first century sense. Uh, Jim Essien, who came and did our men's training, they did a wonderful job yesterday, such a good day with our men. He, he quoted uh, this gal who just wrote a book on uh, the cross of Christ. I would just recommend to any of us. She said it this way. Crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. That's what the cross was intended to do, to put this person in a, in a subhuman category. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with subversive ideas that crucified persons were not of the same species as the spectators. Therefore, the mocking and the jeering that accompanied crucifixion was not only allowed, they were a part of the spectacle. Crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passerby was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person who had been designated to be a spectacle. Now think about what is happening there. Je Jesus left heaven, the complete enjoyment of heaven strapped on human flesh and he goes all the way to the cross, a place of unrelenting shame where every last shred of dignity is stripped from a human being. And it's there that our humble servant Jesus 
This is where his, his humility took him. And it's there all the way to the cross, right? That he encountered the, the hell and the misery of our sin where he is utterly ruined in our place and for our sin. Christ, he's willing to get so low that all of our sin could come crashing down on him and absolutely crush him. This is the humility of our God. And isn't Jesus just unlike any other king? I mean, think about the stories of every other king in history. Every other king sets it up this way. I create my servants around me and when danger comes, when the battle's gonna be fought, I'm gonna send all of my, my people out from the safety of, of these walls. I'm gonna send all of them out and they're gonna go fight my battle and they're gonna be the ones who die for my salvation. But Jesus is a different king, isn't he? He's the one that humbles himself that says, no, you stay behind my safe walls. I'll go fight the battle. I'm gonna die on your behalf while you stay back here safely. I'm gonna be ruined so that you can be rescued and saved. That's the humility of our God. Let me just take a moment to apply this part in, in just two brief ways. When you think about humility in your life, there's two ways for you to miss humility. There's two ways to miss it. And by the way, pride is that, it's the essence of all of our sin in all of our lives. It's that anti-God part of us, that's pride. And we can miss humility in two ways. Pride has two faces. Face number one sounds something like this. I'm so wonderful, so world out there, praise me. I'm so wonderful, so praise me. It's that arrogant form of pride. It's the overt form of pride. It's, it's the form of pride that you, when you see it, it's pretty, it, it registers pretty quickly. Oh, that's pride, right? That, that's one way that we can miss humility. But, but there's another face to pride. There, one face is I'm so wonderful, praise me. The other face of pride is I'm so wounded and hurt, so it's so a world out there, pity me. I'm so wounded, pray, or I'm so wonderful, praise me. And on the other side, I'm so wounded. Hey, everybody out there, pity me. Now, ironically, if you, if you can drill down, do you know what you find underneath both of them? The exact same self-focused, self-obsessed heart. Everything in their lives is seen through the lens of their own self-obsession, right? And both of those miss humility. Both of those are forms of pride. That both of them are a way of saying, world, you get to my needs and my interests. I don't care about yours. So there's two ways to miss humility. And secondly, I want to just, I want to show you out of this text, just one mark of humility, one mark of humility. If you're looking at your life and you're asking the question, is humility inside of me? Like, is it growing in me? Where, or maybe you could think about it this way. Where is the resistance point of humility right now in my life? Where is pride and humility clashing right now? Here's one mark of humility. When it comes to obedience, a humble person refuses to draw a line, like a, the line in the sand that they will not obey God in. So think about Jesus in this text. God the Father is looking at Jesus and saying, hey, I want you to renounce your rights as God. Jesus is raising his hand and saying, I'll do it. There's no line in the sand. Yes, I'll do that. Hey, I want you not only to renounce your rights, I want you to actually empty yourself by becoming a human being, by, by inhabiting the, the body of a newborn baby. Yes, I'll do that. There's no line in the sand here. He's not looking up at God and saying, God the Father and saying, I will not do that. This is where you're asking too much of me. He's not doing that. Hey, I want you to take not only the form of a baby, but I want you to grow up and I want you to become a servant, a slave of all. 
Jesus raises his hand and says, yes to that, I'll do that. That, that sort of hard obedience. Eventually, God the Father looks at him and says, I want, you to, I want you to follow the path of humble servanthood all the way to the disgusting and degrading cross. And Jesus raises his hand and says, yes, even to the cross, I'm saying yes to that. See, there's, there's no line in the sand. There's no place that Jesus is saying, God, you cannot ask this of me. That's a humble heart. So that, that leads us to ask the question, where in our lives are we looking up at God right now and saying, God, you can ask a lot of things from me, but don't ask that from me. Th this is the line in the sand that I will not cross. Th this is where the no trespassing sign is hung and God, you're not allowed back here. W where is that place in your life that pride is showing itself and you're, you're shaking your fist at God and saying, God, my answer is no, you might as well not even ask the question. Don't even bother with this one. My heels are dug in. Just allow this passage to be a window for a moment and just allow yourself to look upon our crucified Savior who said yes all the way to the point of death for us. How can we say no to that God, right? That God who loves us like that. The humiliation of Jesus. And lastly, and we're going to finish here, the exaltation of Jesus. This passage takes us down the brutal humiliation of Jesus, down that path of humble servanthood. It takes us all the way down there. Step one, the renunciation of his rights. Step two, the, the incarnation. Step three, the crucifixion of Jesus. And we get all the way down to the bottom where Jesus is degraded. He, he's, he's crucified, he's killed, he's buried, and he's dead. That's the path of humble servanthood. But that's not where the story ends, is it? We don't just see the humiliation of Jesus in this passage. We also see the exaltation of Jesus in this passage. Look at verse 9. We see the exalted position of Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. On the third day, Jesus' heart, it started pumping again. The, the, uh, the king, he comes back to life. He's risen from the dead. And after 40 days, he ascends back to heaven where he now reigns again, right? And, and God the Father bestows on, on this man, Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus. He bestows on him the name that is above every name. He, he bestows on him honor that is above all honor and glory that is above all glory. Right? This is the ascension. This is, this is the exaltation of Jesus. I love how C.S. Lewis describes just in vivid detail that descension and then that ascension of Jesus. He says it this way in his book, Miracles. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. To re he comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humility. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he can incredibly straighten his back and march off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Now, I love that. That's a picture of the gospel story, isn't it? that we have a God who is willing to stoop all the way down, all the way down under your sin, a servant of all, a slave of all, all the way down under my sin, buried, crushed under the weight of our sin. But God raised him from the dead. 
And when God spoke life into his being and straightened his back, God also grabbed his hand and brought him all the way up to his right hand again. And when he brought Jesus up from the, from the grave, he also brought the whole mass of God's redeemed people with him. This is the, the condescension and then the ascension of Jesus. And then you see verse 10, his eternal praise. So that at the name of, of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. N not only has Jesus taken up the position at the right hand of God the Father, Right, for, for all history though, and this is where history will one day culminate, every person is gonna bow before King Jesus. Every person, some are gonna bow before King Jesus and they're gonna be singing and dancing and their hearts just leaping for joy because they're bowing before the one that they have loved, right? But, but some are gonna bow before Jesus shrieking in terror. But regardless of if we're singing and dancing, of leaping for joy, or if we're shrieking in terror, every human being is gonna find themselves before the crucified and risen King, calling out his name as the risen one, Lord of all. Now here is a surprising insight in this passage. I just wanna finish here. Here's the surprising insight. In the end, Pride humiliates us and humility honors us. That, that's the surprising insight in verses nine and 10. In the end, pride actually humiliates us and humility actually honors us. So I want you to think for a second about a person who is, who is reading you know, five, verses five through eight. They're, they're at that Philippian church, right? They're, they're reading five through eight. And after verse eight's read, they see the condescension, the humiliation of Jesus. They stand up and, and they ask the pastor, well, what's gonna happen to us if we do that? If we renounce our rights, what's gonna happen? What's gonna, what's gonna come of us? If we go down this path of humble servanthood, what's gonna, what's gonna happen to us? We're all gonna die around here. If we, if we willingly accept the cross of Christ in our own life, what, what's, gonna, what, what's gonna happen to us? In, in, in a certain way, verses nine and 10 answer the question. Paul's saying, here's what's gonna happen to you. In the end, the humble are going to be honored. Paul is saying, listen, this is the, the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. It's those who get low that God exalts. That the way up is by going down. Now this, you just see this throughout the Bible. Let me just give you this litany of verses here. Uh, Luke 14, 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew chapter five, verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Matthew 18, 4. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Ezekiel 21, 26, exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. Isaiah 40, verse four, every valley should be lifted up. Everything that's low should be lifted up and every mountain, everyone that's exalted now is going to be made low. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Church, that these promises of God await us as long as we'll receive the humility of God. That those promises await us.
that this is the story of the Bible. In humble servanthood, Jesus counts our interest above his own. He leaves the privileges of heaven and receives poverty in its place. He lives among us perfectly, allowing his humility to take him all the way to a degrading death on the cross. But then Jesus breaks out of death's grip as the father raises him from the dead and exalts him forever. That's the story of the Bible. And now church, God wants to retell that story every day through your life and mine, through our death and resurrection, through our humiliation for Jesus' sake and exaltation. That, that story of the Bible, this is the point of this passage, it's meant to be retold in your life, in my life. This is what Paul is inviting us into. Humiliation, then exaltation. He's reminding us that those who will willingly follow the path of Jesus, making his path their pattern, that, that's not gonna be lost on God. God isn't gonna overlook that. God, God sees that and will one day honor that. So church, can we pray together? I wanna give you a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Has Jesus' path become your pattern? Where are you resisting and pride resisting Jesus? You know, it's amazing to me how many relational conflicts just really boil down to no one is willing to renounce their rights. It's amazing how many just moments of obedience that the Lord is calling us to end like this. In pride, us saying to God, I have drawn the line. God, I will not cross it. What would it look like for us to, to take on the posture of our crucified and risen King this morning? What would it look like for us to do that? For us to humbly renounce our rights? For us to humble ourselves and to walk toward Jesus, even to the point of death, in those hard places that we don't want to let go of. We don't want God to change. In church, can I remind you what's on the other side of that humiliation that Jesus is calling us into? On the other side of every one of those humble moments is honor. On the other side of the humiliation that comes along with following Jesus down the road of the cross. On the other side of that humiliation is exaltation by God. So, oh God, would you make us a humble people following in the footsteps of our risen King?
God, in those areas now where, where pride is, it's, it's blocking and thwarting what it is that you want in our life right now. Making, it, making us just unable and unwilling to say yes to you. Oh God, would you, would you come and kill that in us today? Would you make us an open-hearted people? A humble people? God, would you do this work in us today? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.